1: Collecting Cars, the global online marketplace devoted to cars, bikes and automobilia. A safe, smart and simple auction experience for everyone. List for free, sell for free, hassle free. Follow us on Instagram at Collecting Cars and also CollectingCars.com. Hello and welcome to a Collecting Cars podcast. It's been a long time. I'm Chris Harris, your host for today. Sorry about my slightly nasal delivery. I have uh, I recently did the Cinnamon Challenge for a popular TV show and I can't breathe now, so I'll be suing the BBC soon. Um, my guest today is someone called Manish Pandey. Now, those of you that are into the genre of motorsport films will know exactly who he is. Some of you won't. So I'll also introduce him as the man behind, and I think the, the credit was scriptwriter and producer of... Senna of Senna okay which has to be the greatest motorsport documentary ever produced for me I think so many of us remember that film so Manish thank you for coming on the podcast um this is a very interesting man he's got a great story to tell and first of all I want to launch straight into Senna how it came to be how you managed to persuade uh Senna's family and Formula One and Bernie Eccleson to get involved because this is this is a smash and grab story for the ages (laughs) So, manage. Welcome, and take us from the start. Why did you want to make it? How did you make it happen?
2: Ah, I, I actually loved him. I think that's always a great place to start with people like this, and um, he was my absolute hero as a teenager. And um, but I can tell you, um, everybody remembers Senna for Monaco, 1984, driving out through the rain and the Tolman. is like, yeah, it's, I've watched that race. It was, um, it was all fantastic. But. My first real memory of the man was um, Murray Walker talking about the 85 season that was coming. And you just saw this black and gold JPS Lotus. And just I just saw Senna in that black, in, in, in his black overalls. And uh, there was something about him. he an incredibly handsome guy, but there was something about his eyes. The way he was looking at this car was, I mean, I... I've been addicted to Formula 1 since I was 11, but I'd never, never seen anyone look at a car like this, walk around a car like this. And Meanwhile, Murray Walker is telling you in voiceover, if there's a guy in Formula 1 who can win the world championship in his first year in a competitive car, you're looking at him. And Murray was God. So if God says that this guy is quite possibly the most naturally, exactly. If God says,
1: here's another God.
2: It, he must be a god and I just remember absolutely I, I just loved him And you could do no wrong and um, who, so here's he, an
1: interesting thing mm. formatively mm. we have our racing heroes yes. in your shadows like us can you remember who your hero was before Seneca came yeah. on the scene oh
2: yeah yeah yeah. No, who very, was it oh god it was Nelson Piquet and isn't that a terrible <laughs> way to sort of Gee say it hey. in a day hey. no, so, uh,
1: Ma- by the way Manish is a man of colour
2: exactly no exactly, <laughs> just to be interesting Oh, God, no. I say the thing about PK. what I used to love about him, and I guess you would call it a childish sense of humor. And you've got to remember when we were, when I was a kid growing up in the kind of, you know, early 80s and things, Formula One started four minutes before the race and it finished with a checkered flag. There was no podium. There were no long bits of intro explaining this guy's into abseiling, this guy's into whatever. What you had was what you got. And um, PK would always manage. And it was a classic thing to throw some bit of character into what you were watching. And that's why you like these guys. I mean, look at, look at the success of Drive to Survive. They yeah. don't need to have massive spills. Just get the drivers out there. They're young, risk-taking, generally, you know.
1: In that context, I suppose the great shame is that even though we had a, we had a sense of how impish PK was, yeah. we didn't know the full story of yeah. just what a lunatic he was. Yeah. Yeah. So, you go, so you go PK to centre. You're captivated by this gold, black way, car. Both,
2: don't forget that they're both Brazilians, okay? And yeah. I am, as you pointed out, a man of colour. So I rather... As a, as a,
1: I can say that because I am as well, by the way. For those of you that can't see this, I have no idea who I am. I can say that.
2: <laughs> so, by, <Yeah. laughs> so the the, the but the, the joke is, of course, you've got these South Americans coming into a very heavily European sport. And they're both, they're not... They're obviously white men, but they're tanned white men, and they kind of come to Europe, and uh-huh. they're showing kind of all the There's European a whiff of cons- calypso there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, exactly that. It's exactly that. You've just got this idea that you have these non-Europeans coming in, and they come in. and I, I love this about Senna more than anything else. He, he had a rep for being the sort of, you know, wild this, wild that, and, you know, I remember Jackie Stewart tearing him one for, you know, after the accident with Prost. Saying, you know, you've been involved in more accents than anyone else, you've been involved with more, you know, contact, da, da 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 The, the truth is also, Senator was probably more technical than people give him any credit for. And I think 1988, I think it's a really interesting year because uh, if you look at Prost at the end of that year, the Australian Grand Prix, he won that. And uh, he said, he says in a sort of you know, classic Prost way, said so, you know normally at the end of the season uh, you add up all the points and the person with the most points is a world champion and uh, this year it was a little bit diffi- different and you know but no problem, no problem at all <laughs> so he basically explained to you that he should be world champion yeah. but that and Senna did it because of some parenthetical issue Senna's not stupid, they had the best car they knew it and it was the guy who was going to win the most races was going to become the world champion. And that's not because Senna was brash or stupid or whatever. He knew what the rules that were. Was that was Terminator
1: is. vision. Correct. Binary, ones and noughts. I know what I need to do to win
2: here. And, and that's exactly, and that's a beautiful way of, of putting it, was Terminator vision. And I love that focus. I think that focus is just, for me, that's what it was about. And Actually, Bernie's often talked to me about, you know, kind of, Oh, you know, it's about who wins the most. It is about who wins the most. But actually, do you know what it really is when you're a kid? Actually, no one gives a crap about who wins the most. I care about who's the fastest. Yeah. that's what you care about Who that's, is where, the
1: fastest? that's where you get the villains. that's where you get the people that captivate right we're digressing massively I've got no, pin, go I'm gonna have to, you are a slippery eel <laughs> I'm gonna have to pin you down here okay so, so we need to I want so you've gone from yes, this yes th- you're captivated yes. by this Brazilian yes. it's 85 yes. you've got a Lotus yeah so so fast forward we, we have and we can go back into your love of centre and why you got to that sure. but I want to understand where you were in your life what year it was? Was it 07, 08, around then that you did this? October 2004.
2: Was it, 2004, was mean, it so that early? Yeah.
1: Okay, sorry, there you go. Yeah. So, so how did you come to be in a position where, and I will go through this later on, Manish is a, is a, is a polymath, he's a qualified doctor. So you, you, you're you a doctor and suddenly you, you're going to make a film about Senna. It's a harebrained idea. How did you go about it? How did you persuade everyone to do it?
2: Okay, so in a nutshell, I uh, actually, four years earlier, got my first rom-com commissioned by working title films. So they really liked it, I did another one, they really liked it. The problem was they weren't getting made for various reasons. And uh, what was really cool though was that I'd worked with their head of film for a year and I married her. And that was really rather wonderful. Ooh, cle- so Clever, clever. Exactly. So we're now getting into high-stakes high nepotism um, uh, or, or insider trading in film. So Nat um, had worked with a producer, James Gay-Reese. They'd done a, a zombie movie together, um, Long Time Dead, I think. And um, James actually had read, in 2004, a series of articles in The Times about the death of Senna. And he thought, oh, wouldn't that make a great documentary? James. Gay-Reese. Yeah. And James... Um, through various mechanisms had a three picture deal at working title at the time and he pitched the idea of the death of Senna to Eric Fellner, co-chairman of working title. Now Eric's a big petrol head and he loved the idea of this but it was the death of Senna and my wife said to James oh you ought to meet my husband because he is mad about Formula One, he can write and uh, he really knows about Senna. So I met him actually in his office just upstairs, literally a hundred yards from where we're sitting now in October two thousand and four. And he said, you know, and we should call it three days at Imola and it's about this guy and he arrives and it's his death. And I listened and I just said, No, we work. And he goes, What do you mean we work? And I said, It's powerful, but to really understand Senna's death you had to understand his life. And um, and I then talked to James for an hour about Senna's life, you know, Brazil ninety one, about being the kid from Brazil and coming out here, about the hardship and everything. And he said, Can you get that down? You know, can you write that? And I spent I think it was a couple of months working on a ten page outline. And uh, the structure in filmmaking is actually hasn't changed in a hundred years. Three acts, they're kind of it, approximately a quarter of the way in, you, you've got to switch. Yeah. Uh, you then another 50% of the story, then you switch into the third act, and that's how it works. And so my first act was actually from the reign in Monaco to him becoming world champion. So we we're doing four years in a quarter of the time. And, and everyone was like, oh, well, I mean, aren't we missing lots of stories here? And we're not, because what the story is about ultimately is a really good guy in a really bad world, a yeah. really tough world. He's very pure. That's the thing about him. And it's that, that classic line from uh, Al Pacino in Godfather 3. Not a good film, but that great line, just when I think I got out, they dragged me <laughs> back in. And that's Formula One. And, and it was amazing because what you have when he wins that championship, that's when the target's on his back. That's when it starts to get tough. Yeah. And so you have this whole second act, which is going to be about him trying to establish himself as the best. Finally, in my opinion, establishing himself as the best. But like everything else, I mean, this just lives on the edge of a razor blade. Yeah. You know, that is how big the edge is. And then bang, mm. you're into Imola you're into the third act, and, and I remember a few people so saying... So the outline
1: that you presented yeah. was accurate to what you ended up
2: making? Oh, it. in the end, I mean, scarily faithful. That so what, so once you,
1: because I've never I've never been bold enough or brave enough to undertake something like that, so you're there, You I've got someone to commission this film, someone wants yeah. to make it. Yeah. The outline's been approved, yeah. and also it's been approved to my design, so I'm happy with the fact that they're, they're going to make yeah. the film I want to make. Yeah. Then what do you do? You, do you, you don't have Bernie Eccleston's phone number. You can't just go, right, Bernard. Uh, I want access to all this archive. How on earth do you go about it? So
2: July, I can't even tell you the day in fact, it's just this is how I'm saying it all is. June the 23rd 2005, following year, James had sent a few emails to the Senna Foundation and just by chance Bianca Senna and uh, the head of business affairs was going to be in England that day and had some time for some meetings. So uh, we met Bianca and this guy called Celso Lemos and uh, it was a nice formal meeting, and it was a little bit stiff, but there was something really nice about both of them, I really felt, and I got to talk a little bit, and I think this is just a big lesson in life, actually. You can have whatever personality you have, whatever it is, good, bad, and different, personable, non-personable, but there is nothing like having knowledge. Yeah. Okay, nothing. Nothing like having knowledge. I just say it again, you know. If you know what you're talking about, it really doesn't matter if you're wearing the wrong even sweater. Even the people
1: who are listening to you know they know nothing about it. They, everyone has an authentic authenticity filter, don't they? They know he knows his shit.
2: Correct. Exactly that. So we sat down. I talked to him about it, and then uh, Bianca had other meetings to do, but Celso did have time. So uh, we went to lunch. He asked a thousand questions at lunch, and it was actually it was a You know, presumably, it it really was like uh, uh, a quiet. It felt like a quiet um, interrogation. But at this point,
1: how many how many times do you think they've been approached?
2: So we found this out. So we 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 actually found this out. So this is two thousand and five. Okay, the original Antonio Banderas Warner Brothers project was nineteen ninety five. So in those intervening sort of ten years, he said to us, we were getting eight offers a year. We're getting an offer every month and a half. And the family were just saying no to everything. And he said to me, it was incredible, he just sort of climbed it like, he said, you need to come out to Brazil. You need to pitch this directly to Viviane. I can make that happen for you. Can I give you a bit of advice? You speak beautifully, but she's audio visual. You need to bring something visual with you. And um, I think you'll get this made. He said that, and I remember James and I looking at each other thinking, oh, it's unbelievable. Um, It took us till March the 5th, 2006 to get that meeting. I mean, you know, stamina yeah. is required. And um, oh, and I remember, I thought, at that time, you really couldn't scrub things off YouTube. There wasn't that much stuff around. So what I actually did was I made a, a slideshow. And the slideshow was uh, 12 sequences, first act, second act, third act. And my wife, who knows everything, hot off the success of Billy Elliot, said to me, oh, no, 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 you got this one wrong. And she's always right. And I said, what way is this wrong? She had five minutes, ten minutes maximum. And she, she said, how long is your thing? And I timed it, and I'd got it f- beautifully down to 38 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so she was like, they're going to fall asleep. Yeah. And I said, you know what? The other thing I think I share in common slightly with Sam is that is um, OCD. Like, he would personally pour over every semicolon in his contracts, And I just have a feeling the family are like that. So this is one of the few times I think you're wrong. And she said, well, you know, it's your funeral, all the rest of it. So, James and I get on the BA jet, it goes 400 yards down the runway. I've never seen anything of The a pilot literally stop the plane and said, we have a problem. 45 minutes later we're all being turfed off the plane, this meeting has taken 10 months to put together. I have a three week old son and it's three in the morning, so um, we're on our mobiles. The plan was to arrive a day before because no one wants an IT failure when they go and present something like this, especially if it's 38 minutes. And I would have music, you know, a lot of music. And so uh, I go home, we get a call from the airline. The flight is actually, uh, in the end, it was 20 hours delayed. The bottom line is this. It meant that the day I arrived in Brazil at 4 a.m. in the morning, at 10 a.m., we would be meeting the centers Six hours later. Horror story. uh, But honestly, just the whole thing was just, oh, my God. So we got to the hotel, very ritzy hotel in São Paulo Celso met us and then the first Cel- Celso Celso Lemos sorry was so the what, head of business affairs his for job the, for was the Senna foundation. foundation and his job was basically to say no in a very charming way that to everyone his, to everyone that's what he'd been doing and that's what he did yeah except to us yeah so Celso came picked us up at the hotel, drove us to the Senna family building the foundation building it was a building that Senna himself had picked, the top five floors would have his bill, uh, businesses, the helipad was on the top floor, there was one lift that took you, you know, classic, the one lift that takes you right up to the office. So we parked in the underground car park, we came out and so, celsius said, oh my god. And I said, what's wrong? He said, not what's wrong. He said, do you see who that is? It was Senna's dad. And he said, in the last three years, I haven't seen him, you know. He said, that's his way. He introduced us. So I got to shake hands. It's my big hands, big man. Really, I don't know how you would describe his face. He, he, he had that face that had seen everything. Yeah. You know, and they used to say about him, he had Midas hands. He could take any business and turn it into gold. Yeah. Very formal man, very lovely man, very, uh, you know, very methodical. Anyway, so we shook hands. And I also said, that's a good omen. So we go up. We're going to the small office where I'm going to present. I've, I, of course, plug my computer into the big screen. Nothing I can do projects the images of my <laughs> computer to the big screen, which is why you go the day before. Uh, fortunately, I had taken a pair of speakers, those little things that you used to put an iPod There's in There's a lesson before. here
1: for anyone who has your presentations.
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, sound. Music is everything in film, actually. You know? yeah. Everything you don't write and see is a music. and. Uh, So anyway, so I put it together and I thought, well, we're going to have to do it on the laptop. You know, at that time it was a 15-inch laptop. And uh, then Viviani walked in. And I shut my eyes. I can remember exactly which was wearing a beautiful dress. And she had some some gold earrings, quite long gold earrings. I mean, she looked like some kind of Inca goddess. I mean, that was just my hero's sister. All those jeans just walking in. And I looked into her eyes and I just thought, this is going to be all right, actually. And normally I get very nervous before these things, and I just suddenly felt incredibly calm. And because, of course, we couldn't show it on a big screen, we had to huddle around my computer around the table. Seven people in the room, including James and me, and um, I hit play. And the music started, and the first images started, and I started talking, and I, I knew it was. Are these well, just these are slides, or are they? Yeah, they're eight? slides. There's no moving image, it's just slides. So I picked these slides very carefully, each act and uh, each sequence, and she started crying. Straight, I mean, straight away. So I hit pause. And I, I still can't quite believe I said this. I said, Please don't cry, because if you cry, I'll cry, and we'll never finish this. So she calmed down. I remember, I just, I hit play, and 40 minutes went by, like, it was two minutes. How
1: quickly did you phone your wife and say, yeah, I told you so?
2: <laughs> that, was, that text came late. <laughs> no, what I realised when I got to the end, because I'm just looking at this screen, I wasn't looking at anyone else in the room. When I stopped, everyone was crying. Everyone was crying. And I remember the lawyer, the senior lawyer at Working Title, when James and I went out, said, don't negotiate. All you need to do is get them to some point of interest, let us sort of get into it. You know, it's, these things take forever to get a decision, don't worry about it. Viviani got up, gave me a hug and said, we're making this film with you.
1: And she had, she could authorise that?
2: Correct. Correct. I, I, I stood there, mouth kind of wide open. I looked at James, James looked at me. We couldn't believe it. And then we ended up having a wonderful lunch with them. Well, we had a great dinner alone that evening. And they asked me, "What is there anything you'd like to do while you're out here? And I said, I'd like to go to Murumbi. I'd like to see. I <laughs> actually get a bit emotional about this. Give me a second. When I was a medical student and I was. Um, it, I found medical school very tough. But one thing I used to have on my desk was. Um, it was that photo film that said, Don't crack under pressure. Yeah. Do you yeah, remember that one? Yeah, yeah. And, and I had a little. I had an MP44, a little, well, I think it was a 143rd yeah. version of it, a tiny thing. They just mini sat Chaps. on my desk. Yeah, mini champs one, exactly. Yeah. Had them on my desk, and I uh, remember when he died, I just couldn't look at my desk. Yeah. And um, so I'd actually carried this car with me, and I went to the funeral. Um, I went to the funeral. I, mean, I went to, funer- to, uh, to Murrumbai Cemetery, and uh, I took it out of my pocket, and I just put it. Left it there. Yeah, I thought, you know, I thought whether this movie happens or not, you know, some things happen in your life which I, I can tell you forget BAFTAs, forget even making the movie. Yeah. Just, just all of that. It's just that's all great. All, you know, that's what you do for a living. There are these human experiences that you have sometimes. They are so profound it's what we were put on earth to do
1: yes and i think it, uh, maybe i've made a mistake not not, not allowing <laughs> yeah, yeah not <laughs> allowing myself the tissues being been passed over and uh, to or allowing you to to tell us your history but of course the, I, I think people can t- can tell that this is someone who's trained as a doctor and has found themselves 10 years later in a career position that makes no sense whatsoever talking to the sister of their hero having just been authorized to make a film about their life I mean it's utterly bizarre you should have been ripping appendix out shouldn't you really
2: <laughs> yeah or, or, or actually in my case putting plates into that okay. uh, yes yeah putting plates into but but I, I think the, the point is that that basic trust is established yeah and I think that that's another great lesson in life that you know in terms of getting deals done you hear all this sort of Wall Street nonsense <laughs> actually I think the best deal making is very interpersonal because there's some we we have compasses I mean hopefully you one has a bit of a brain in that you can read a CV so you know somebody's competent, but after that, you do make fundamentally emotional decisions. They can be really, really wrong, as they have been with FTX, for example, Yeah. okay, or with Bernie Madoff, so, you know, I introduce someone, and it, but I think if you do your due diligence, if you make sure somebody's got a decent CV, if they really seem to know what they're doing and enough people vouch for them, I think you can make informed decisions, and it took us a, a while then to go from there to, to making a movie, but the next critical step, the critical step for us was because Viviani had accepted what we were doing, they called Bernie Eccleston. So they called Bernie and so they you said… So you
1: must be thinking this is bizarre, so oh, now… It's, it's it's about to get… Med school, Viviani Senna, yeah. now we're at, call Bernie.
2: <laughs> call Bernie, so they called Bernie and um, I was taking some proper time off, you know, I guess we now call it paternity leave, yeah. so um, I was actually in the Caribbean with my wife, my very young son, and uh, I got a call saying, Bernie can meet you on Wednesday. And I was like, but Wednesday, as in five days from now, Wednesday, yes, uh, you don't have to be at the meeting, but I think it'd be useful if you could. So then I had to get a flight back to London, uh, still slight, all slightly surreal, all of this, and um, Went to Princess Gate for the first time in my life. Went there. You know, the doors open. Very nice receptionist. All those meeting rooms. And we were in, I remember we were in the room that is, they nicknamed it the Playboy room because you go in, a very small room, comparatively. But on the back wall is a Playboy bunny. And then when you get close, you realize it's a painting made up of front covers of Playboys. And they're all about a centimetre and a half by a centimetre. It's like it's a mosaic. Of a playbook. Anyway, so sat there, met their head of uh, media rights, had a long chat with him, and then, and then Bernie came in, and I will never ever forget this, as long as I live. And he wore a tie, had a white shirt, black trousers, and he had a tie, he had a black tie on. And he didn't sit down. It was amazing. He didn't sit. The was meeting. he wearing
1: jeans or slacks?
2: He was wearing black trousers, and they had a very, very sharp crease. <laughs> And uh, no, no, I just remember he, um, he literally, he, he leant on the back of a, a chair, sleepover. over, we were sitting down, he listened, and uh, there was something about him I have to say I just really liked, just immediately he walked in. I know what it is, I think he projects, listen, if you, you're smart around him, you realise you are facing someone who's ten times brighter than you, for sure, I get that. Um, and he has got a sense of humor, but there is an energy he has, you know, like getting too Buddhist about this. And I just really liked it. And he asked us a couple of questions about what we want to do, how, how, he, how he could help, and the answer was obviously archive. And you'll remember nobody had made kind of the archive docs before this. Yeah. Um, I
1: don't think anyone knew what the archive
2: was, did no, they? No, no. So I knew it was in Biggin Hill. Yeah. And I knew, I knew of it, I didn't know how extensive, I had no idea what their rights were, you know, what percentage of Senna's life would be Bernie Archive versus something else. And, um, you know, we were having to guess all of this stuff, but we did talk to him. And I think, again, you know, I think intelligent man. I think going as working title films was massively helpful. I think having the Senna endorsement, because they'd never phoned anyone. They'd never, sorry, they'd never phoned Bernie to, to say anyone, you know, for anyone else. That's yeah. what I'm trying to say. Massively inarticulate now. Um, but,
1: but, so you've got there. Yep. Bert, Bernie, you come in with the correct introductions. Correct. And yeah. You've got this little man who's leaning on the back of a chair, who's radiating intelligence, menace, all the things we know he can oh, radiate. Very much. And what, and what does he say to you? Does he, make, does, he, does he want to make you feel relaxed? Does he want to just throw you off guard now and again? Does he want to make...
2: It was exactly like, so he's going, so it's historical. And I said, yes. You gonna, is he going to die in it? And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> is he going to die in it? Yeah. He kind of did. Well, the point is, I think he's obviously asking. What, I mean, what's Bernie? I mean, I've thought about this a million times, and I think obviously, yes, it's great. The Viviani vouch for us. That's all very, very good. But I think Bernie wanted to make sure we weren't making some awful,
1: yeah,
2: you know, half-assed stuff movie. Which is the
1: reason why no one had been allowed to do it before. Correct,
2: and that's the easiest way to do it, by the way. Always, yeah. you know, always go for the, the, the obvious you know big poster angle and that's not what I was interested in doing I think I hope the one thing I do radiate is some integrity in these you know there's no way I'm going to make a film about the death of the person I absolutely most loved as a you know as a kid as a hero yeah. of mine and so I think he got that but what he did say and again I'll never forget it was genius as he was leaving he just stopped turned around and went give us all the money you've got we'll see what we can do <laughs> He shook my hand and he was gone and it was unbelievable. So what's next
1: steps? What, what what do you do when Bernie Eccleston said give us all your money? So then
2: we start to budget this, we start to work out roughly how many minutes of footage we need and um, I'm going to tell you initially I got this wrong by exactly 50% because what we thought we might be making was a more conventional feature doc so we'd have some access to amazing archive but we thought it might well be talking heads. Yeah, and. Uh, I remember it wasn't the end of that. Then we went into stasis because doing the deal with the family was taking a very, very long time. Obviously, they—they're—you know—the intention is there, but you know, when lawyers get together, things become very formal. If somebody had told me from the moment Bernie had kind of winked and said yes to the moment we actually got going would be another almost two years, I—you know—I have been looking at things. But the, you do these things out of love. I mean, you do these because you just get up in the morning and go, "We've got to make it happen, no yeah. matter what." And so. I think it was about six months later, um, James, I think, had worked with Asif Kapadia in, I can't remember with maybe in advertising or something, but he knew him. So we met Asif, and he was just the right guy. I don't know if anybody's seen the film The Warrior, which was his first film, won two BAFTAs, really should have won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film. It's just beautiful. And it's really what I call filmmaking. Yeah. You know, he, what you're supposed to do when you make a movie, it's in the title, Make Stuff Move. And if you can get rid of dialogue get rid of dialogue try to make that the whole point is you've got this moving camera make it move tell yeah. the story in pictures and he just had it and I remember we a, fr- a friend of mine who is now an unbelievably um, cool plastic surgeon he's the only person I know actually who's a plastic surgeon who has a world record in radio hamming they drop you on an island you have 24 hours to set up a mast and do Morse code as fast as possible, and it has to be acknowledged by someone else, and you do that solidly for 24 hours, and then are the this, person with the most this of is this, a known task that people actually do. Did people go and do this? This this is radio, radio hamming. This is what they do. Right, and he, he, his name is Marius Nicolaou and he holds the world record. He's also an unbelievable plastic surgeon. And I remember at the time he uh, was the only person our health secretary Lord Darzi would allow anywhere near his computer because Marius makes. The kind of guys who build Saturn V Rockets look very, very ordinary, he is so good. So Marios created a little program to um, rip YouTube clips. So we were ripping YouTube clips, any, any YouTube clips we could find of Senna, and I was getting my Formula One tapes, I had all of my old tapes and yeah. we were ripping those. So Asif and I decided, we would got my outline. We refined the outline and we thought, you know what we've got to do is we've got to make something moving, because we've got to move this project along. So he and I, we spent basically, I think it was five days in my study cutting an eight-and-a-half-minute promo for this. Three acts, exactly the acts I've said. Yeah. Act 1, Santa makes it a world champion. Act 2, by the end of it, he finally wins his third championship. Act 3, Imola. Okay. We put it together, we added music. One piece from Blade Runner, which I remember, you know, there's no chance in hell you could ever yeah. option or buy that. And, um, Van
1: Gellis, wasn't it? Van was exactly, Ooh.
2: yeah. It's, a bit, it's beautiful. There, actually, a piece of music I was thinking of was called Rachel's Song, which never made the movie. But... Um, we put this together, and as we finished this, it, I'd love to claim this as my idea. It wasn't mine, it's 100% his. He, he turned around and looked at me and said, Oh my God, you know what? And I said, What? He said, We don't need talking heads. We just need to do it like this. And then I just thought, You, you know, in that moment, you just go, You're, up, you're not even 80% right. <laughs> you're 100% right. The only problem is, by now, we'd agreed deal terms with Bernie, and it was for 40 minutes of archive. We now needed 80 minutes of archive. And um, without going into the details of the contract, let's just say that for the 41st minute became punitive. So, we went back to see Bernie's lawyer. Now Bernie was not Princess Gate again. Gate, back we go. And uh, went, went to see them and said, uh, look, we've got much further with this project. This is what we need. He said, so what do you need? We need double the footage. Who's
1: David Copperfield, you're there with the cap out, aren't you?
2: I mean, it's it just please, sir, can I have 40 minutes more? Exactly right. a man
1: who's notoriously generous when it comes to giving away his IP.
2: Well, you know what, though? I've gotten him a little bit. As I said, he does take things at face value sometimes. And so I explained this very, very reasonably. just said, look, we need 40 more minutes of archive. It's not that we won't pay you. What we can't do is go get punitive, but we will pay you the same amount per minute as we do for the first 40. That we can afford. That we can afford and we can make this with that. Anything else? Yeah, we'd like to come to the archive. I just got this look and you want to come to Bingham Hill? Yes, what do you want to do there? Look at the tapes. How long are you thinking about? Two, three, four hours, four weeks? Four weeks? How many of you? It would definitely be two of us up to four. We need viewing stations. So I will put all of this to Mr. Eccleston, but I think you should prepare yourself (laughs) for the worst. (laughs) you're not going to believe this the next day it was yes yes for everything and I just remember thinking this is now we're well into the realms of this project it's got its own life it's going to happen it's going to be beautiful you just know there's a moment where you just know and um, we went and it was great we got charged for the sandwiches by the way which I thought was (laughs) genius so I think it was like £5.60 per person so we were getting charged up to 22 quid a day, you know, for, the, for these And it's of a
1: things. very private area for him, isn't it? Bigger Hill is, yeah. is his man cave, yeah, it's where the cars are, yeah. but no one gets access to that.
2: No, no, and he, Bernie made a decision, you know, he knew we weren't joking and he knew we weren't mucking around. And um, what what I think is really rather wonderful about this is that, you know, it was a stuff in, in that time, what you can search is limited, of course, but you're being intelligent with your searching and I, you know, I, I, you know, I give 10 out of 10 to everything I see. Asif's got much more discriminating eyes, or certainly had then. He'd go, Look, Come on, it's just more racing. We need something a bit more. He you was know, very good in that way. But there was one thing that I remember I found, and I was just completely like, Oh my Gideon, whoa. And it's when Donnelly has his accident. I found the shots of Senna in First the garage. Saying, yeah. No, but it was Senna in the garage seeing it on his monitor. Oh, get the, I remember that. Yeah, it's a, be- oh. it's a killer moment because he has tears in his eyes, and then you see the car coming out because he decides he's going to qualify and found the shot of the car pulling up just to the edge of the pit lane so he could be the first out afterwards and it just I remember seeing that and feeling kind of like oh my word and you can see it's that. this it isn't me picking an actor and putting him in the right outfit and telling him to act this is real and you've got such a lot of responsibility so as someone who see this.
1: who probably I have what I have in common with the, what, many of our listeners is that I'm not a filmmaker I, I, I've been involved in television a while but what is it, why is it Santa looks so beautiful, and where did you find this footage? Because I was what stunned me was I was used to seeing Formula One viewed through a long lens with no depth of field that that was a sports camera, you know, that films Wimbledon, cricket, and suddenly I saw Formula One in a different way. I saw depth of field, I saw lensy shots. Where the hell did this stuff come from?
2: So... so. This is the thing about Bernie is that he really... I think I think people really don't understand him. And I think the thing is he wanted to make this a televisual sport. He was filming all that behind-the-scenes stuff and paying for his own crew to do it. Been doing it from the mid-80s. They had all of this. All of this B-roll that never went out except on minorly on, on these highlights tapes at the end of the year. Because I think it was one of those things where they had enough crew... Think about it like this. Supposing you need... One cameraman at every corner on a 12-corner circuit, okay, plus a bit of extra coverage. So say you've got 16 cameramen, okay, but what are they supposed to do in between practice sessions? Exactly. And Bernie doesn't waste a thing. That's the thing about him. So he was saying,
1: get out there. Correct.
2: Somebody well it wouldn't have been Bernie. I can tell you, it would have been. It would have been um, uh, Eddie Baker. eddie baker ran all of that for him and he would have been saying listen we've got we've we've just flown all of these people out they've all got a camera come on film something have a bit of fun do some long lens stuff one of the shots that we saw so many versions of is um you would have a tire between you and your subject and what they would do is they would get the lens to go and shoot through the bolt hole of the tire so you shoot someone and then you just pull the focus and you back on the tire yeah and they would try all kinds of things and that's exactly what they were doing and this was all there But did you know it was there? No. So the moment you you suddenly realised,
1: hang on a minute, someone's actually shot. Well, you haven't... Someone's already shot the movie of Formula One. Correct. But no no one told us.
2: But, I mean, there were hints of it, because if you look at all of those tapes... Um, the first Fokker tape came out in nineteen eighty, you know the kind of yeah. completed Foca tape, and the last one that I'd seen up to then was obviously ninety four There was behind the scenes stuff in it, you know there were voiceovers and we didn't acknowledge it Cor- correct, except when we were making that in half minute thing that was I think that was that was why it was so inductive because suddenly Asif, with his filmmaker's hat on, went, hold on, there's tons of coverage in the b roll there it's just there. that looks like a that looks like a movie rush to me. But you didn't
1: know. It, wasn't it also the case that because Bernie was the first person to understand how you might ring fence an event, he owned the IP for what everyone else was producing at the weekend as Absolutely well? Absolutely right.
2: The case? Absolutely right. If you shoot something with a moving camera within three hundred meters of a Formula One circuit from the Thursday before to the Monday afterwards, it's owned by. <laughs> <laughs> He's a genius. He is a genius. He is a genius. He understands rights. Yeah. But he also, he, I, I think, he gets a bit of storytelling. He gets narrative, and so. We were there, we did this, we started putting this together, and you could feel this was going to be special. And the last ingredient, to be honest, and it's something that really shouldn't be understated, was we, I think James got the call from Antonio Pinto in Brazil saying, I am writing the music for this. And we're like, who are you? Uh, I am a Brazilian composer, I've done some movies with Walter Salles, he'd done a few things and he sent us three tracks. I played the first one, again, just lots of tears just burst into tears it was the theme that lonely trumpet sitting on top of this orchestra that just builds and builds and builds and um, suddenly we've got this composer who is making the most beautiful music and it just came together I'm not saying it was easy and we got so much stuff wrong and you would watch it and there were always issues of pacing and you could see a lovely sequence and then go, oh, I'm a bit bored now getting from there to there. And, you know, obviously with my motor racing hat on, you know, Asif was probably getting migraines, going, Well man, just keeps telling me to put a race in. This race is a terrible idea. And of course, you know, in the end, of course, you, you, you back down, but that basic essence, that structure never changed. And in fact, what I did was I created a script using, uh, and that's why people say, well, how do you write uh, a documentary? What I did was I literally went through all the books and I got my final draft out and I wrote it as a script. And what I would do is, if it existed as a book, it would be in um, blue. If it existed on film, so I had seen a rush, I would write it in black. Yeah. So I would write, Senna walks down pit lane, like that in black, and then yeah. I would write the dialogue. If it, I mean, the tough bit was I would have this magenta, which is, this is our dream, if we can find it. So, you know, so you, you're kind of informing us, and it was way too, long. in fact I still got a couple of copies of it. So so. What- for example, with some of the footage, the, yes.
1: the, the bits that I think really struck many petrolhead and motorsport enthusiasts was, was him as a as a young man, mm-hmm. talking about, and also talking about Fullermore and the, it was Fullermore wasn't it, the cart ah, racer? Fullerton. 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 Fullerton.
2: Fullerton. Fullerton.
1: Fullerton. This was real racing. Yeah. It, was, it, it was almost like he was, he'd written these Mojus's. For this film to be written about his life 30 years later what it was that that was the crazy thing wasn't it? well can it?
2: i just say i mean that was another piece of in- inductive brilliant from asif actually that so what happened was we got to the end of this the story and that, that's actually from uh that's actually from the australian grand prix in 1993. so he's about to leave mclaren to go on his new adventure and he's asked by if you listen it's like i've forgotten his name It's an australian journalist who his greatest rival was. That's the same journalist, by the way, who calls out Prost in that first accident. I'll put it to mm-hmm. you, you turned in early. You know, he yeah. says that. You think I would do something like this on purpose? You know, it, it, same journalist. And the, there was this absolute moment of sort of shock when Senna doesn't say, oh, it was Schumacher, oh, it was Prost, oh, it was actually Mika. And also, no, he, he, it was a guy he didn't beat. It was the guy he didn't beat, the older man. The first one first girlfriend better.
1: complex, though, isn't it? First girlfriend complex. It, it's, it's
2: a, it's but, a beautiful moment, and I love it. But it really mattered to us. If, and I'll tell you the clever bit. I mean, if that's not clever enough, we had this lovely footage that was Super 8 in colour. weren't sure what to do with it, except to stick it at the front. And of course, he said, "Let's stick it at the back," and then now let's add Fullerton to this. And you see him, and you realise how simple. And this story is about ultimately that quest. You know, heaven on earth can exist but it's simple and I think people lose that and that was all he wanted he just wanted a steering wheel he didn't even want a gearbox he wanted a steering wheel a brake and an accelerator for him those three inputs that's everything there is nothing else after that that is the beauty you can't hide behind it you can't hide behind aero can't hide behind the size of the engine it's just me drawing better lines than you repeatedly, getting into a rhythm where there's this precision, and that's who he was.
1: The description of the Monaco lap was always uh, fascinating, wasn't it? The idea that he goes to this almost superhuman state, he can't remember what's going on, he's clearly holding his breath. There's so much shit that's wrong about that, by the way, it was technically dangerous.
2: I've got got another absolutely it had to be story about this. So, Jerry Donaldson, a Canadian reporter, had done that interview with him and uh, I assumed like all of these reporters he's going to have his tape. so we met him we met him for lunch and he said oh gosh sorry in those days our TDKC 90s you know I was a working journalist we fly economy everywhere you think we keep our tapes recorded over my friend and I remember that was actually one of the most crushing moments I've, I've ever had because I just thought no that just can't be right and then we debated should we get an actor and that just goes against the ethos then of the whole making of the film. And why would you get an actor to do that? It exists. Yeah. You won't believe this. Four months later, I get a call and it's Jerry Donaldson. He said, Manish, you're not going to believe this. My, we're selling our house in Canada and my cleaning lady's just gone through the loft. She's found the tape. I said, what? She's found the tape. I've got the tape in my hands. And I said, don't move. I'm going to send a bike over now. We will just take the tape. We'll record the tape, we am going to burn it onto um, some CDs, as we did then, because they weren't mem- memory drives, and I will get a transcript done of the whole tape, and I will return the whole tape to you, okay, but please let us option the rights to this. And when you see that Monaco lap, which unfortunately isn't 88, there wasn't an onboard camera at the time, we, we cheated it from two years later. Yeah. When you see that lap to Senna's voice, not an actor's voice, it just, and that was the point of the helm. That's yeah. the point. That's yeah. the whole point. You're in the car with him, feeling what he feels, experiencing what he, you know, experience in that moment. I think
1: part of the reason why the, it, it worked on so many levels, why it resonated was we got, and I have to be very careful, I don't come across as an arse here, <laughs> we knew he was a magician behind the wheel and we also knew that he was a complicated human being. But mo- because we were living mostly in a magazine era and also in a television era, we didn't know much about Senna other than what we read in the papers. What we didn't know was that he was, he was a poet with words as well. And was, there's also something very rhythmic about the way he talks in the, in the film, isn't there? The, this, the cadence of the way he talks draws you in. It's, a, it's magnetic. I, I remember thinking, I want to hear him talk more about this subject because he romanticizes it in a way that doesn't come across as sticky or treacly. He's, he's not doing it to make us think he's a god or better. I'm just drawn in because I think this is, this might be the greatest exponent of this art that I've ever heard or seen.
2: I mean, I, you know, I can't put it better than that. It just that's the point when he spoke there was a hush in those press press conferences, and he wasn't—he like Bernie, not a loudly spoken man, very quietly spoken, and you had to lean forward to listen. But it was so introspective, so precise. He would think about. We've got to remember, he's not even speaking English to us, you know. As his sorry, he's not speaking English as his first language, yeah. you know. So he's sitting there. Very often, there, there, there's a beautiful moment actually. Again, it was after the Donnelly accident where the uh, they ask him, you know, uh, how he's doing, and he he there's a pause and it, some people said that what he would do is sometimes take the English or Italian because he's speak really Italian um, and translate it into Portuguese come up with his answer and then say it to you in English and that's why there's a little lag sometimes with him and what you realize is it's this quest for perfection was kind of in everything you know really OCD and you should listen to Bianca describe because you know Bianca and I are now really good friends so I'm very close to the to the family you know we we've never lost that contact and it's a lovely thing and she described him once in the morning just slightly losing himself at breakfast you're not gonna believe this just putting some butter on some toast and trying to get an absolutely even layer of butter <laughs> I thought, and
1: realizing people were watching it yeah I think yeah. suddenly
2: he did kind of you know snap out of it but she said they were what are you doing and he went, oh sorry, yeah, yeah it's cold now you know but there is something about a personality like that and when they put that level of, you know, it's that word he used repeatedly, dedication. It's a beautiful word, I think. When you have that level of dedication to this thing that you do, you know, it, how can it not be absolutely beautiful?
1: So Bernie has given you access to the Total Archive, and you've asked for four weeks. Is, that, is your dealings with Bernie done at that point?
2: No, so I, what's great is we do it. We pay them, you know, which I think he liked. Then what happened was, we um, did three really lovely beats now with Bernie after this. When we got to the point where we could show the movie, we gave the office a call. Uh, Bernie's lawyer, Bernie's media rights person, another one of Bernie's lawyers actually, I remember two came, and Fabiana came to see the film. So they came to working title. he Fabiana
1: to the... Sorry, room. so
2: Fabiana, uh, Bernie had... Fabiana and Bernie weren't married at the time. He yeah. had just had a divorce a couple of years earlier, yeah. and uh, he'd been with Fabiana I think for about a year yeah. at that point. And Fabiana is Brazilian,
0: yeah.
2: and Fabri- Fabiana's a Paulista, and so you know she's very steeped in the art of Senna. And um, she was actually uh, on the FIA. Uh, she, she, she used to work, in fact, not not the FIA at the time. She was very. She used to work for the promoter of the Brazilian Grand Prix, right? And he was actually the person who introduced Bernie to Fabiana. So uh, she, she's not somebody who doesn't know about motor tracing. That's what I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah. So the four of them sat uh, with us and they watched a film and they loved it. They really loved it. And what was lovely was... How close was
1: that to the finished product that we saw? Oh,
2: Basically the it same was film. The film yeah. yeah, it was yeah. a film. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. Was, yeah, bits to do with the colour, bits to do with the sound, blah, blah, blah. But it was a film. And I think what they really... They were actually a little bit blown away. Because I think they expected to go in and see quite a sort of dry dock... And they came out thinking, "Oh my god!" Just seen a film in the afternoon. It felt like a film. That's the point. It feels like a film. And uh, you know, again, you just can't stress. I think Asif's instincts in this enough. He, you know, he was not thinking about this as a documentary, not at all. Thought about this as a feature all the way through. It was great learning for me because you can you can write and you can do this. But when you see that transcription, you know, you learn. You learn vertically and. Um, So they loved it after that um Bernie came to the premiere he said he would and he did and uh there were two beautiful moments about the premiere one thing that i did which no doubt is completely illegal i invited murray walker and i got a call from some moron in the accounts office of wherever saying well how's he going to get up here he lives it turns out he lives in hampshire and you know it's going to be very expensive and i said we're going to send him a car because he's eighty something. No, we're not. We're not going to send him a car. I mean, that's going to cost us. I don't know. It was like six hundred quid or something. I said, "This is Murray Walker." Yeah. So I actually contacted someone who was working on a much higher budget film at Universal. I said, "Would you get a car for Murray <laughs> Walker, and can we charge it to your film?" They said, "Yes, we can." <laughs> right?
1: He's Murray Walker. And that's Murray
2: Walker. So we got we got Murray to come up in a car. And I remember came out of the came out of the cinema, and um, I saw Bernie. He said, "Come here." And I was just walking to Murray, uh, to, to Bernie, and this black Mercedes came by and the back window came down and Murray.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
2: I just, I was on a cloud. Yeah. Murray Walker, thank me. You know, he said that was him. What yeah. a great movie. And off he went. And then Bernie said, come here. He gave me a hug. And I remember thinking, oh, that's unusual. And um, I think, it, I can't remember who it was. It was a motorsports journalist who knew. He like, said, doesn't do that very often. You know, you've done all right, I think. I think you can probably ask for a pass. I think he would probably give you one. And we never got out of touch actually after that, you know, Bernie famously doesn't email, but you can email his assistants. He famously reads everything. And if you phone him, he picks up the phone. You know, he's that kind of human being. And well, very That
1: segues
2: into, well, into the, the last thing as well. The last, last part of this is my absolute favorite part. So, we had the BAFTAs. We won. We won two. I that can't. Film. I still...
1: and that's unheard of for a film of that type.
2: Yeah, a documentary about motor racing wins Best Editing and Best um, Documentary. It was just, a, it was an amazing feeling. So um, the next, I, my son, it was my son's birthday that day. He was going to be six, and he had a meltdown as we were leaving because you have to leave early. And you know, I hope you lose, Daddy, and oh, I mean the whole thing. My wife brilliantly. Had kept Harry Potter 4 behind and said, Here you go. He went, Oh, oh, okay. Like that. And he calmed down. And I stupidly bribed him. I said, Listen, tomorrow I'm going to buy you any Lego you want. Okay. And uh, the next day,
1: I was. Four is Phoenix.
2: I was, yes, exactly. Right, sorry, carry on. I was um, (laughs) very good. (laughs) So I was very, very hungover, as you can imagine, the next day, very tired. And like a clock at five o'clock, he said, Right, Daddy, let's go and get our Lego. So I just couldn't believe he, he held me to this, dumb me. So we drove to Brent Cross to Toys R Us. I don't know if you've been there on a cold February day, February 13th, 2012. And there are just basically zombies with onesies pushing plastic <laughs> around and in, these, in, these, in these massive... Tr- anyway, so he, he, he found this bit of Lego and uh, we were walking to the till and my phone rang. And uh, it was Bernie's assistant, saying, oh, hello, is that Mr. Pandy? And I went, yep, goes, uh, Mr. Eccleston would like a word with you. And I said, OK. So we were in Toys R Us. Were you thinking,
1: what have I done? What yeah, I, you know, a- I totally. Like, yeah.
2: something, oh, something. I'm, did I say something stupid? No, yes. something. And anyway, I just want to say congratulations. We're all very proud of you. And I thought, oh, my God, that Bernie Eccleston just said that. And I said, thank you very much. That's all I want to say. And I said, OK. And he said, what's that music in the background? And I said, I could explain this to you. It's complicated. And he said, I've got time. (laughs) (laughs) He's so quick. So I said, "Um, I'm in Toys R Us in Brant Cross. And then I explained the story of my son. He goes, have you bought the Lego yet? And I said, no. He said, put it back on the shelf. I said, what? And he said, put Lego back on the shelf because you'll spoil him if you buy him this. And I said, Bernie, I am not taking, I'll take loads of advice from you, I am not ripping this Lego out of my son's hand, putting it back, like, let's go home because he's gonna teach you a lesson about business in 30 years, right? So he laughed, I was laughing, we were queuing up, and that really was the, I mean, that really happened. It was hilarious, and I was sitting there thinking, God, okay, you know, something's happened.
1: So this, you've made this connection with Mr. Eccleston, Mm. That's a long time ago. Mm. And the reason why we're here is because you have just made an eight, one hour docu-pedia of Bernie Eccleston's life in conjunction with him. And this is the key thing. Mm. It's not just authorised. He's in it. Mm. So how on earth did you manage to make this happen? And just, you can't give it away. I'm going to go for screening in a minute and see the first two episodes. I feel very privileged. Um, I'm fascinated by this. He's a divisive character. I'm not going to try and uh, wash away some of the controversial things he said or the way he's offended some people. That's just life. He's a man of his age and generation. But what's undeniable is he, he turned a bunch of Garage Easter into box office and he created an empire. And I think that's the story we all want to hear. And you've told it. So do you, do you feel worn out, eviscerated by the whole thing? or Or do you just sit back and think... Shit, I've, I've I've made this with Bernie Eccleston and I've got his mobile phone number. So what, what what do you think?
2: Yeah, but I mean, I think I think a bit of both. To be honest, I mean, I'd I'd always stayed in touch, <clears throat> and um, in I can tell you the day again. I'm good at dates. October the eighth, two thousand and nineteen. It was a Tuesday, eleven o'clock. I went your, to see your him. Your brain's off, boss. Uh, it is not normal, that's for sure. Wow. But um, it was very nice. They, you know, they sort up meeting him, you've got to remember the longest meeting I'd ever had with him up to then was maybe 30 minutes. And I went in, I sat down, he came, he sat down and um, I said, like, I'm just going to come straight to the point. Um, I want to make a series about you. And he looked at me. And he said, what about me? And I said, I think you've got to tell us the story of F1. That's obviously a very intricate story. It's a story about you as much as it is a story about the sport. I mean, we're talking about all the great drivers, you know, all the great moments, but also all the deals. You've got to talk to us about how you did this. But um, knowing,
1: knowing who he is, what he's done, and also some of his, what you might call, methods, <laughs> did you... Did you not think that when you asked that question, it was inconceivable you'd get a truthful answer?
2: You know what? I thought he'd just say yes or no. Yeah. Because I think, I, you know, I sort of knew him enough, I think, at that point to ask that question, I think. And um, I mean, I should just mention, I. there was a three year detour in my life where, straight after Senna, I tried to get a Ferrari film made, the feature. It was set in '57 and '58. I think we got very close a couple of times. Actually, Ma- Michael Mann has just made that film. I oh, know, so you must
1: be spitting tax.
2: No, I, I mean, you know, he, it was Michael's project. I mean, look, come on, me versus Michael Mann, who knows, right? I mean, yeah. but it's pretty obvious who's going to win that fight. But we got close, you know, we got very, very close. And one of the people who helped me enormously was Bernie. Bernie actually owns most of those Formula One cars from 57 and 58, and they all run. And that's why I went to see him about it originally. But it got to the point where he walked halfway down the Abu Dhabi pit lane to talk to Piero Ferrari for me. He picked up the phone to Sergio Macchione and said, you should do this. And he put me in Luca Montezemolo's office. Okay, so this is not somebody who didn't have a little bit of faith in me being able to get this done.
1: And, and, and in fairness, it, it backs up this sort of empirical creature that we know he's, he's someone who's he's very intelligent, but he just deals with what he can see. And what he's seen is a great film, i.e. If he could do that, correct. he could do the next one. He's the man for the job. Correct,
2: correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly that. And I think he's in that way, you know, and this is a man who meets people, you know, in his career, I, I've been trying to guesstimate, I mean, but I would say he's a man who meets at the very, very top level, probably one dozen people a week, okay? And he's been doing this day in, day out since 1950, okay? And so, you know, his data bank is big, and he's very bright and it becomes pattern recognition for someone like that. They can tell by the way you walk, the way you stand, the way you speak, cross-referencing a couple of clever questions, asking around about you. They can, you know, he doesn't need to do a credit check on you, he can do that with his eyes. He literally can, you know, and I, I sort of admire that. And I really admire someone who keep keeps their word. As a doctor in a way, that's the one thing you're really supposed to do. You're supposed to say, I'll do my best and you're supposed to do your best. Yeah. You know, and that—that's what you're supposed to do. It's always struck me that that's who he is. He just treats as he finds. He really does. You don't want to fight with him.
1: But but he is controversial. He is controversial, and and we'll come on to that in a minute because I think that's your your view on that is is really interesting. The the idea that you know there might be there might be method behind some of the madness. We can discuss that in a minute. But I, the idea that you've—he's even agreed to this—I find amazing. Well,
2: what was amazing was he looked at me. And he does this thing, and I've now got to know it a bit, having worked, I've spent eight weeks with him in the last two years, you know, a long time. And I can, there are some things, and he's got, he has the most incredible brain. I mean, Professor Sid Watkins used to tell me that man has got an extra lobe, right? He really has, trust me, you know, you know, Prof was no dummy. I mean, he was super bright. And he just said, no, 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 I don't think, Bernie, wait till you get to know him a bit. I mean, he is just the next level. You know, I went to Cambridge. I spent time with some really serious mathematicians, people who had to take marijuana to slow their brains down enough so that they could string a sentence together, but who could literally do string theory in their sleep, you know, get this, okay? He, half his brain is what I call an unbelievably well-developed bookie brain, instant calculation of odds. And the other side is unbelievably incisive when it comes to people and somehow these two things communicate fact, I got invited to a very very ritzy dinner uh, four months ago in Florence five months ago in Florence can't tell you who was at that but there were two Italian people a husband and uh, a wife this husband said to his wife uh darling who is the most intelligent person you ever met in your life and she went Benny Eccleson like <laughs> right there. So bang. Yeah, bang. And I, I sat there and I just thought, wow, OK, a lot of people vouch for this. But he's, he's beyond bright. OK, don't, don't, you know, don't be fooled by age or anything. I mean, he's just bright. He just sees things so so in the hardest so way. So anyway, so he did this thing. He looked at me. Yeah. I asked him, Let's, would you do it? He looked at me and you could see he was doing a calculation. And what Bernie understands is when he says yes to something, he's actually saying no to something else. He understands the world as a closed system. So all these people who say yes to everybody are actually liars because they're saying no to loads of other people. You can't say yes twice to the same thing. And I could see him doing a calculation, and he said, he, asked, he, didn't, he didn't ask me a question, he actually, he said one thing, and let's hope this is borne out. He said, if you do, it be very good, won't it? And I said, yes, it will. And he said, okay, let's do it, and he shook my hands. And when he shakes your hands, it's done. Now, you may have to wait a while there may maybe all kinds of things that you've got to negotiate between then and now, but it will happen.
1: So, I I wouldn't say I'm obsessive on the subject, but I think I've read all the books that people would be brave enough to write about it. I remember mm-hmm. there was one that was published, I think in 2002 or 2003, called Bernie's Game. Correct. I don't know who the author was. Yeah, yeah. Now, this struck me as, it's still the most interesting one, because it's a book of two halves. In my view, there's the book before the lawyers have got a hold of him, and the book after the lawyers have got a hold of him. It, 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 it's it's this almost, is a level book. Yeah, yeah. it's almost, it, it reads like two different people have written it. Um, and I just think, how do you approach, how do you ask the questions that you think no one's been brave enough to ask, or do you just not ask them because it doesn't matter to the story? What? Well, how did you approach that side of it?
2: Just ask him. Just ask him. You know, it, it was really, really clear, because he... I said, I think what you're going to understand is that what you've done in your life is so far beyond anything we can get into eight hours. I think you should feel pretty fearless about this. You know, what what is he? To be honest, what does he have to fear?
1: Yeah.
2: You know, he's ninety-two. He has done done it or been there, seen it. Maybe it's not
1: about what does he have to fear. The question I'm asking is, he appears to have, to people, to ordinary people like myself, Mm. he had a very carefully crafted image mm. of the of the quiet little autocratic dictator that that managed to have a bunch of ego ridden lunatics that would not be told what to do he could tell them what to do that was the he was the ringmaster he could tell Senna what to do he could tell Michael Schumacher to shut up no one else could and I think when you've got that vision I'm thinking why would he want to explode that when he's 91 years old why why change that why le- why let us a pe- have, have a peek behind the curtain because because that might almost alter that view we have of him.
2: You see, I think that we may have had this view of him from the outside, but I think he worked in a circus where everyone saw him uh, every two weeks. Actually, he spent a lot of time with lots of people, and what you've just said is not really what anyone else ever said about him who knew him. Exactly. And I think that's the point. I think that, we, you actually, should I give you the fundamental reason why, in my opinion, he said yes? Why? Shall should I tell you why he said this? I would love to tell you it's because I'm a genius. I would love to tell you it's because I was gonna, no stone was going to remain unturned, you know? I'd love to tell you that. I'd love to tell you I'm the most sycophantic filmmaker in the world with a big wad of cash sitting underneath my pillow. You know why he did this? He did this for his son. This is why he did this, in my opinion. And I think it's a wonderful thing to do because I, you know, Ace, I've got to know him a little bit. Super clever, so cute. You know, and uh, he's just a little boy. He's a clever little boy. And Bernie's 92. Yeah. And I think, for, you know, without sentimentalizing this too much, I think Bernie knows he's extremely unlikely to see Ace married. He's extremely unlikely to see Ace through his GCSEs. Right. And I think if someone's going to tell daddy's story, why not take somebody who, you know, doesn't bullshit, is very passionate you know, and who will try to get to the bottom of stories rather than taking them at some form of tabloid value. Because if that's what I wanted to do, I'd try to be Piers Morgan then. Why not be the best tabloid editor in the world? If that's what you're going to do, go and do it. That's not really what I've wanted to do with my life. You did I, I,
1: Did Bernie have full veto? No. He no.
2: signed his release almost immediately. He said, you decide what you want to do with this. No veto at all. None. Looking you in the eyes. None
1: that was quite scary it was scary
2: it was sc- <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong i mean sometimes when we were when you see it right there were moments when i was making this i suddenly thought oh my gosh who am i sitting with here Angleston pinch yourself but the thing is that <clears throat> he he's led this life that is extraordinary he's met everyone it's just it's it's the breadth of it and I'll tell you, okay, so invert it. One of the things that, in my opinion, is really weird about Formula One is because the circus arrives at a capital city every two weeks or wherever, it draws the people from that city to the circus. Sometimes the people in the circus make the fundamental mistake of thinking that they are very important because of the people who come to the circus. And Bernie's someone who's always had absolute perspective over that. He can't stand people who prance, who are prima donnas, but he loves people who do their work well. He loves that. He really admires that. And I admire that too. Now, we want to get into kind of levels of controversy. You know, I've got to know him as a man. I've got to, yes, you know, this man man was born um, on October the 28th, 1930. What views do you expect someone like this to have about a yeah. lot of the things that now, you know, I hope my children will be, or my son will be fantastically um, even about. You know, do what? Do I want my son to have a homophobic bone in his body? No. Do I think Bernie does? No. Absolutely not. I, I Actually, i I found him zero sexist, definitely zero racist, and definitely zero homophobic. There's no doubt about it. But he's got this very old-fashioned sense of honor, and I'll give you my interpretation of Putin for example, But he was a used car salesman, it, it, now people think a used car salesman somewhere where a person goes and buys a car from him, no he didn't really do that, this is business to business, he bought cars from very very sharp used car salesmen and he sold cars to very very sharp used car salesmen. And you, the speed at which they conducted their deals would normally mean it's a cash business, and you would shake hands and you reconcile at the end of the day. There has to be honour there, okay? And this is how it works. And there is a lovely old phrase that these boys used to use. What was that guy like to deal with? Take a bullet for him. Yeah. Okay. Now transpose that to the world in which we live, and people say he says I'll take a bullet for Vladimir Putin. He means, comma, in the context of doing a deal because he has spent so many, he tells a story, we we didn't include it in the series, because the story, basically because we couldn't find the archive of him, but members of the Peron government came up to Bernie in 1974 when Carlos Reutemann runs out of fuel a couple of laps from the end of the race and say, what do you need to make your team successful? So they start talking about money and they promise loads and loads of money and the money never comes. Okay, that's a top politician who promises, a team, not a circuit, not to, you know, build a brand new track somewhere, just makes a simple promise in 1974, which is n- never honoured. And it's about a crummy amount of sponsorship on car. Years later, by the way, I am no fan of Putin. I, I think, actually, you want to see who Putin is, go and get onto the internet now. Go and see the speech that he makes to the widows, uh, to the, sorry, to the oh, mothers. With the cake. No, 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 no. Watch what happens. Um, he, the, the, no, no. The Kursk submarine disaster.
1: Yes, sorry, that one.
2: Right? He's in an auditorium um, and he's explaining why, um, you know, the ship's gone down and one mother becomes hysterical. Stands up, they bundle her out. You see a bloke with a syringe, a hypodermic syringe in his hands. They obviously sedated that poor woman. Before she came I've never seen anything that scary in my life. Okay, so I'm no fan of Putin's, but they, let's look at where Formula One used to be shall we? Yeah. Brazil? Was it a military dictatorship? Like, yep. Yeah. Argentina? Mm-hmm. Ditto. Oh, South Africa. Lovely cuddly place in the 70s and 80s, wasn't it? They went and raced where they could get the money. That's the bottom line. It was the bottom Welcome line. Welcome to <clears throat> this world in the 70s and 80s and when people weren't fat because they couldn't eat. Okay, this is how people worked. Did he want to make loads of money? Yes, he did. Did he deal with some unsavoury people at the time? Yes, he did. Did they come home to dinner at his home? No, they didn't. You know, this is the there, Is there
1: any? I, mean, I don't want to give, give it away. It's no. Eight hours to go yeah, of yeah. it, but i yeah. One of the things I'm, I'm fascinated to see unfold is I, Is there? Will there be any sense of regret, or will, will he use this as a, as a way to sort of, perform catharsis? because you can look back on his life and I, I bit the, the, the really naughty bit of me hopes he doesn't because he that, doesn't because yeah, that will no, add to his authenticity I'm saying,
2: but I don't, I, this is a, people expect him to be an apologist for himself and he's not you know he's fully formed I think he's one of these people he was fully formed at about 15 okay he, he's just that far ahead of the curve and he's got a very old-fashioned sense of honour He's got a very, very old-fashioned sense of justice. He, If you shake his hands, he expects you to deliver. If you don't, you don't get a second chance. That's it, yeah. because he's a busy man, okay. and that's what it is. I, mean, I look at sort of the Lewis Hamilton, Hamilton tra- trajectory, which I find a shame, to be honest, right? but the world is a very complicated world, and I think there was no issue between them. There was no problem. There was no problem there at all until BLM happened and I think a lot of people of that generation are very suspicious of movements. You know he just looks at it and you know I I can tell you now that you know other people I know who are kind of in their 70s and 80s looked at that whole period and just thought is this being hijacked? What is the real political point being made here? Is it as simple as it looks? And um, by the way I think they're wrong. I think it's pretty obvious. I don't think you're allowed put your knee on any human being until he dies you know you can't do that okay you can't film that you can't get away with that it's wrong and we should be out there you know we should be out there with placards my politics and Bernie's are completely different but do I believe that fundamentally he has a system of honor a code of conduct yes and the people who say he doesn't are really interesting because they're usually people who've come out worse and they deal with it. <laughs> yeah, there's a consistency and there. Isn't there is a real consistency there, and it's a, it's one of these things where, and I also think sometimes maybe the thing is in life, very successful people, what happens is people around them feel that they're owed something, and when they're not given what they feel they're they owed, snipe. yeah. And I think look, I'm not an apologist for 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 anything, but I think. He's an extraordinary man. He created a sport, galvanized a sport, where people were dying. Episode one, five people die in episode one. Okay. This is a sport where it just, you know, it wasn't a sport. It was a demolition derby that started at whatever o'clock, whenever the organizers could be asked to get it going. You know, was there a flag marshal? Who knows, you know? And he saw what it could be. Now, did he do it for purely altruistic reasons? I doubt it. But did he leave the sport? Did he, did he create the sport that I fell in love with? hundred percent. Yeah. You know, Did he do his best? Uh, another sort of, you know, morally, you, you can take this any way you want. John Hogan. John Hogan was the man who worked for Philip Morris. Yes. For Marlborough Cigarettes. They yeah. put a lot of money into Formula One. Now, I'm a doctor. I don't smoke. I think it's the most evil habit on earth, okay? Marlborough happened to sponsor my superhero. That's pretty inconvenient, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Damon Hill, what does he say to me sometimes, having done it? He goes, you know, one of the strange things, I I wake up in the morning as a non-smoker and I go, I was put through school and so are my kids by cigarette companies. What does Sebastian Vettel say on Question Time? He's asked, are you a hypocrite? He said, yes, I am. You know, we find ourselves in morally really difficult places in life, and um, someone has to create the rules, the framework, whatever you want to call it, and sort of you know navigate through that. Sometimes for other people, and I think Bernie, you know, was very, very good at doing that. And I remember John Hogan, uh, he came to see us the first week that I filmed Bernie in Switzerland, and uh, and you'll see the series; it's a very direct style. There's no hiding it in the way that we put it together. And John said, he won't talk to you about two things. And I said, go on. And he said, he won't talk about his own role in safety. He never will. You watch. And he never did. Yeah. No matter how much I tried to provoke him, he never would. He would find some reason not to answer the question or skirt it. Because he didn't want the credit. Yeah. And he won't talk about the charities he supported. Yeah. Never. Yeah. It's incredible. Because those things are unspoken. And but, is that, that, but, Nanda, but is that, I
1: suppose, as someone who's fascinated by him, is that because he genuinely doesn't want the credit, or he doesn't want to reveal a level of altruism that might, that might, in some way, damage the the image of the of the uh, of the dictator?
2: No, I think it's a form. I, yeah. I just think that there are some. I, you know, it's that thing. You know, charity is something you should do silently, You should not go around telling people I gave. Oh it yeah. To and, and there are whatever. so
1: many stories of his charity closer to home when mechanics would. Have ill relatives. Are suddenly, a jet would get them back. I mean, there's been so many of those. They can't be a coincidence.
2: No, he's a bit, look, I, I'm just telling you what I found. I found a very, very bright man. He's actually extremely shy. That's the actual truth of it. Like, loads of intelligent people. They're just the smartest people in the room. And well, I posted
1: bored. on on Instagram my uh, just a, a, the cover of the of the piece and also that clip mm. uh, with him. Being the director of, of everyone's lives, I love the animated one, and the comments we got back were interesting. A lot of people were saying, "I'm looking forward to this," saying, "It's managed, he did," saying, "It's going to be fucking great." I love that, but there were lots of negativity, and I think what I what I want to say to those people is, you don't have to like someone or align yourself with their moral code to be fascinated by them. And I'll I'll let I'll let you into a secret here. I hate crabs. Not not the uh, not the the type that might climb on the human body, the, the crustacea. I am terrified of crabs, I mean, I really am. But I can't stop watching videos of them on YouTube because I, because it's something that's abhorrent to me, but it's fascinating. And I, and I don't think we should be ashamed as human beings. It's all part of our education of life. So I, I don't, there are bits of Bernie that I probably find less palatable than you might, but actually, fundamentally, I'm just, I want to know how he did it. That's the, That's the thing. And this is the closest we're going to come to it, I think.
2: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, the the bottom line with him is it's always understated. But if you understate the same point several times, I think people start to get the point, if you know what I mean. And that's kind of how I've tried to tackle this. So very often it's not explicit, but I think you'll find the archive around what you're seeing will answer the question if he doesn't directly. And what you see is a very human... What you see is a very, very, very human journey. And um, I don't know if you remember, there was a great phrase that, the, uh, that was used in a, in a very sarcastic manner around how uh, the American reporters would embed themselves with the U.S. armed forces during the first stages of the Iraq war. The British reporters came up with, with a phrase, and I think I'll get accused of this. They weren't embedded, they were embuggered. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I'm, loads of people are going to say this. Go, you know, you just, you, yeah, 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 we've heard it. I'd like to think I'm a, a bit brighter and a bit more objective than to do a puff piece on him. And it's all well, a puff
1: piece. It's, it'll, the proof the, the of the pudding, isn't I it? I think
2: so. I think uh, so. I,
1: and I think uh, one thing I have to ask you is he has, and I was going to ask you again this separately, this idea that, that he's in some respects the prototypical shock jock. He has this ability. To say something that everyone thinks is a massive faux pas, but they don't stop thinking for a minute he decided to do this for this reason. We'll come to that in a minute. But when you were when you were researching this and recording it, how many times if you'd had a mouthful of water would you have gone, Jesus, I can't believe he said that. Every four seconds. Because you sent me a clip. You sent me a wonderful clip, which might be, and I don't want to give it away, but it 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 involves it was a comment you made about Frank Williams who had just passed away. So we're talking about national hero status. And he just said something that was so wonderfully cutting about him. I thought no one would have the bravery to do that. Is, is it wrong to say something naughty about Sir Frank? Of course it's not, because he was a complicated human being. There are going to be people that have stories, but only Bernie had like the bollocks at that point. Not to go, oh, he was the best, Frank was a wonderful, he just said something really negative. How many times did he do it?
2: Uh, just you, you know. Hundred times a day, (laughs) honestly. The thing, also, just with Frank, there's this incredible bond there. It's really difficult to explain. The best way of describing it is that what he's doing is he's basically taking the piss out of his brothers. That's a really good way of thinking of him. They're not his son. They're like his brother They were brothers. It's quite a British thing,
1: isn't it? uh, it, if you're listening to this out of the UK, I if you have if you have close friends, you're nice to them, but you're really close friends, you're really, really close friends, you're horrible
2: to. It's hammer and tongs. Yeah. It's hammer and tongs. And, you know, and, and that was the point. They, they used <laughs> to spend every working day trying to beat each other. But at the same time, Bernie, you know, said to me, you know, we were there for each other too. And um, i just, I just put you back there again. This is a post-war sport. Yeah. In the war, this was not a remote control war, the Luftwaffe were bombing London, Coventry, Liverpool. People were dying on streets. They weren't dying in subtle, unseen ways. A street was gone and a kid would go, oh Mrs Smith and her whole blah blah blah. Kids saw things that no child should see and Bernie's a product of that war. Yeah. You know, he was he was nine years old when that war started. And death, you know, people got, think about what aircraft were like. Yeah. You know, a guy puts your Spitfire together. You're trusting him with your life. Does this remind you of a sport at all? And you get up into this plane. You get to the speed at which you're supposed to take off. And the thing maybe does or maybe doesn't. You go to land. Maybe the wheels come down. Maybe they don't. You press the button when you've got the Messerschmitt in your sight. Maybe the guns work. Maybe they don't. It's all life and death. And now in that context, just five years later, we have the first Grand Prix, the Grand Prix d'Europe, 13th of May,
0: 1950. There we go. And Bernie's is- no, there
2: but Bernie's again. there. Bernie's there as a oh. fan, right? And this is the point, he's 20 years old and he's there as a fan and it's in the context of the war. And this is why I I try to explain to people that people saw death in different ways then. But he fundamentally, I think what makes him kind of a great human being is he changed. A lot of people just accepted it. He didn't. And some cynical people say, well, that's because, you know, TV didn't want to show death all the time. I think that's nonsense. I think people love it. You know, as I said, the viewing figures went up after Senna's death, not down. And this is the this is the whole thing, you know. You've got to have a bit of a moral compass. And Bernie drove. He could drive a car. He became a team manager, you know, a, a driver manager, team manager, you know. Then he went and became the empresario. I mean, he's done all the jobs, if you like. And um, this is a guy who understands the sport from the ground up as well as from the top down, deal wise. And I I think that makes him fascinating, insightful. I love the. I actually love that gallows humour that that generation had. You've got to remember, as a doctor, the vast majority of your patients are old. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, and, you know, people, little children don't break their hips when they slip on ice. Older grandmas do, older granddads do, and we talk to them on the wards afterwards. What do you think? Where do you think their humour is? Do Do you think some guy in his sort of late 70s... he's a good-looking nurse do you not think he transforms into Sid James in that moment of course he does does that make him evil I don't think it does I think you have to have a little bit of latitude about people yeah it's about respect you know it and I think respect at all costs is quite an evil thing actually you've got to respect me do you understand do you know who I am you know I am the customer well you could be a rude customer in which case does the shop assistant have to respect do they I'm not sure that they do. I think respect's a real two-way street. You try to put yourselves in the shoes of someone else. Okay, if you try to do that, try to empathise in your life, make you a good filmmaker, that's the first thing, yeah, that actually makes you a pretty good human being. And actually, if someone can see that you can see their point of view and then argue that their point of view is wrong, I would argue that you will probably change their minds better doing that than shouting at them.
1: Yeah,
2: Telling them they're this. Telling them that Was they're Was there any
1: point at which you discovered a level of ruthlessness that you were uncomfortable with, with Bernie, or, or that you thought, I need to give the viewer a note to know that this is, is a bit, he's overstepped the mark here, or this is too much. Were there any, were there any points like that or not?
2: I mean, weirdly, um, not quite in the same way that you say it, but there's a moment when Francois Sever is killed at Watkins Glen. You'll see that today. Um, Bernie tells Reutemann to get get in the car. <laughs> and Reutemann's seen what's happened. And he explains it to him in a very nice way. But he does basically tell him to drive. Yeah. This is a race at which Jackie Stitch walked away, you know, he couldn't drive. And Bernie told Reutemann to drive. You, know, it's a, you remember that great line in the film Grand Prix, when I used to see an accident, I used to slow down now, I put my Yeah foot down even harder because I know all my opponents are going to be lifting yeah. and it, sometimes there are moments like that you know which each um, other oh my god you know but I think what I've given him a chance to do is just tell you from his point of view now we don't interview anyone else everything else is in archive or on the news or in a you know in a headline so you, you can make your own decision and decide if I'm kissing us for 8 hours or not I would argue that doing something in a very, very partial way, as long as all the other things are there for you to make your own decisions about. You you decide whether he's ruthless. You decide whether you think he owned the business that he sold. I fundamentally think he did. I don't think he ever pulled a fast one. I think weirdly, actually, I think it was in such annoyingly plain sight that all the other people, they were really furious because of it, actually. They were furious that they all wanted to just drive cars regularly. Look at Formula One today. How many teams in Formula One were set up by the people who managed them? Bloody hell. None. Not a single one. Right. Word. The last one died.
1: Yeah,
2: frankly. Um, no, 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 It was uh, actually manage Mattashitz. Sorry,
1: sorry, ma- Yeah, sorry, the, yes, the last
2: yes. one died. And so think about the relationship you have with a business as a proprietor, as a founder, compared to the business as a manager. A lot of people argue that Bernie took Formula 1 as far as he could take it. I guess that's hypothetical because we'll never know. But if you look at Formula 1 as it stands now, and I will talk only about Formula 1 here, it is now managed by professional managers. They hire professional engineers. Some of them have been in Formula 1 all their lives, I think very few now. Um, Are they the best at what they do? Probably, possibly, I don't know. But what you have, are you have these professional managers, some of them with a motor racing background, some of them not. And now you have a professional media company who runs it. So the relationship between the bosses, the people who own the equity, the people who own the shares, and the professional managers is a fundamentally different relationship. Is, yeah. They can sit around a table and probably speak in management ease and, and look at graphs and look at TV projected figures and look at besides, behind the scenes stuff. I mean, it's something very interesting and very revealing about. Toto Wolff, um, when he was talking about um, the business with I think Perez and so on and so forth, he was saying, Look, I don't think we need this out in the media. Now, you tell me 20 years ago, if a team boss would have said that about a rival team, they would have wanted out in the media immediately. Yeah. So the, what am I saying? I'm saying it's a, probably no less at this point a competitive a place, Formula One, in terms of you know, put a driver in a car who wants to win. Are there more pay drivers now? I doubt it, you know. It was always, you know, half the boys could boy exactly half the boys could afford it and the other half boys could really afford it. So, yeah. you know, it's how it worked and but it is a different environment now. What you have is a primarily media business and it was bought to a media business. When Bernie walked into it, it was a bunch of people just trying to beat each other week in week out, get to the grand prix however they could. You know, and I think we should just not forget that transformation. The reason why I think people can take the sport now and do whatever they want to do with the sport and we'll see what happens. You know, still, I think, relatively well, I think early days.
1: What, what you're triggering in me is the sense that he managed to turn it into box office with so few tools. Just imagine if, if when he started, he'd had Netflix. He'd had, I mean, what could he have he achieved? One question I want to ask you, because we're going to have to wrap this up in a minute, sure. even though it's lovely. Sure. I sure, lie, no, no. Sure. But, but Because it's wonderful. But we're going to come back. We're going to do a part two another time. Um, I've always had a sense that there was a really impish, jokey side to him. That he would do pretty outrageous things just for his own amusement. You can imagine him buying a circuit for a laugh, you know, just doing unbelievable things, because he had colossal wealth, but also just this sort of smirk that lurked there. Did you see this?
2: All the time. All the time. He I have got so many outtakes where he just thought, I think I'll just take the piss out of you, and I'm gonna do it, but I'm gonna do it in a deadpan way, and I'm gonna see how long it takes you to work out that I've taken the piss out of you. I have to show you the outtakes sometimes. But I mean there was one particular one where we were talking about ground effect and banning ground effect, and he was looking at me as if I was speaking to him in Swahili. So uh he then started, he, he looked into the camera and said, uh, In 1982, Jean Marie Ballest and Manish Pandey created the Ballest Pandey Formula One series. I don't know what they were doing at the time. I don't know what the rules were, but Manish Pandey seems to know. So perhaps we'll just turn the camera around and ask Manish Pandey what (laughs) happened. (laughs) I was just laughing so hard because he felt I was trying to sort of steer the agenda as to, you know, why. Skirts were um, were banned. I was trying to make it too simple if you like. And it was content and it was sometimes he'd also do it because we use a particular camera, the interatron he has to sit dead centre. Yeah. As much as possible, you know, two hours of filming, ninety-year-old man, you might slouch a bit or move to one side. And I'd like, occasionally could just we just stop for a second, but you just go, Okay, let's go again. And I remember there was one time I think he saw me slouching, he went, Manage, can we just <laughs> <laughs> it's like, always, always. Yeah, always. I
1: think the I'll be clear here, because I think I, I might get some grief. I don't, I'm sure you're prepared for it. I, I don't align myself to anyone's code. No. I've got my own code, you've got your own code, and anyone else has got their own code. But I'm not going to feel guilty about being fascinated by someone. I'm never going to be feel guilty about that. This is someone who, who influenced not only motorsport, but actually the road car environment in ways that we probably wouldn't understand as well. Um, and the idea that his life's going to be committed to film is really important, because so many things we live in in an era now of constant documentation we can find stuff out the internet's there youtube's there but sadly the years before 2005 there's not that much cataloguing of of the things that we're fascinated in you know i I wanted to research the lamborghini miura recently there's no film about the miura no one made a film about the Ferrari f40 why the hell not but we're gonna we are gonna have thanks to you uh, and burning other people we're gonna have a version of Bernie Eccles's life. It might not be the truth, whatever, but it is it's the only one that's been done.
2: That's, I think that's exactly it. You know, we've had a go. I can't put words into his mouth. I wouldn't put words into his mouth. I think it's just been, it's been an enjoyable process, but more than that, I have learned so much about myself in this. And I think that's the other reason why you do these things. You work out what it is about you that fell in love with this, or hated this, or had a problem with this. And it's you know the journey is yours as much as it is the other person's. You, yeah. know, you bring your bias into it. There's no doubt you bring your bias into it. I think the lie is to turn around and go, "This is the objective." Da 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 da. Maybe it is if you were a Martian and came down and spoke a different language, uh, but God knows what that story would be.
1: Can you fit your free plug in now, please? Can you tell us where it'll be broadcast in the UK? Maybe some other markets as well, because we'll have viewers outside the UK. Sure. Uh, and when it releases and why people should really watch this soon.
2: I think if you like any form of motorsport at all, Formula One, rallying, whatever, right? Motorcycles, you should watch this because this is a man who in some ways actually embodies absolutely the sharp end of competition in every word that comes out of his mouth. It's so measured. He's so personally competitive. It's untrue, so it's really worth watching it at that level. This is also a story about a particular kind of Britain, which I have always found really fascinating. These are real buccaneers. These are people who were getting knighthoods in the 16th century, whilst the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Dutch were calling them pirates. These guys never had galleons. They didn't have the 40 gun ships. They had these six gun ships, but they knew every trade wind every single Cove every barrier they knew they so they would come out of nowhere shoot the shit out of the back of your galleon steal all your booty and they were gone that's what this story is about yeah and it's about the absolute head honcho of that group of people so it's about a Britain in a way but listen I mean should we celebrate it yes why not you know it's great they went out they did something with their lives you know and that's that's fantastic. It was
1: also, before you say when it's going to be on and where it's going to be on, there was a comment that someone wrote. Uh, there was a negative comment on that on that Instagram post that said, um, "He took more than he gave," and I can't disagree more. The, uh, the one thing I would say about, it, for all the uh, controversies, for all the divisiveness, for all the you know, for the accusations of poor behaviour, let's look at what he built. Sure, of course he he gave us. Not in terms of money, but he gave us in terms of entertainment as a fascination. Far more than he's taken for me. It's
2: irrefutable. Better words of mine are Murray Walker's. I, um, just, this is actually quite heartbreaking. I was desperate. Um, I gave Murray a call when I'd finished my first lot of filming. And uh, he was in his home at the time. And he said to me, congratulations. And I said, what for? And he said, for getting as far as you have. I said, we haven't edited a thing. He said, listen, I've known this man for 60 years, already where you've got to, no one else has ever got to, and he's a great man. Murray said this, not Manish, yeah. right? And Murray said what he has done for the sport is impossible to quantify. He has built this sport. You know, Murray Walker said that. And what breaks my heart is when we would finished the trailer, the original trailer, I uh, WhatsApped it. Uh, I not WhatsApped it him. I uh, we transferred it to him. It never got, never got downloaded. He Murray prof- died, and it, you know, I just I live with that one. You know, because I think he would have just loved the trailer. He would have. I could see Murray grinning at that trailer because I think Murray really saw what Bernie did, and yeah. Murray M- Murray was no mug. You right. know, no way.
1: So where where and when?
2: So um, in the UK, Warner Brothers Discovery have bought it. So it will come out all eight episodes on the Discovery Plus channel on the 27th of December. (coughs) Excuse me, 27th of December. So in um, Italy, Japan, Spain and uh, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, I think it's DAZN, uh, Viaplay have got it for the Scandi countries, Poland, the Baltic States and um, Latin America, Disney. ESPN, which is very exciting. Um, I think we should be able to announce our American and Middle Eastern partners fairly soon. Yep. So it'll, you'll, it'll come to you. It'll find its way to you in the new year.
1: Can you tell us about any new targets coming up or not? Because the subject matter is, is so ripe for this audience and, and clearly you're, you're at the top of your game at the moment, so you're not going to leave it here.
2: No, really don't want to leave it Okay, so there's a car. It's a brand that we're all in love with, Yeah, it's best in one colour, and there's one person on earth who can really tell you that story.
1: And okay. if you can't work that out, you don't deserve to be listening to this podcast. Exactly. Manish, that's uh, a wonderfully enlightening hour, hour and 34 minutes, oh 30, God, 30. okay. um, but uh, thank you so much for taking the time, and it's not the last time we'll speak to you, because I'll come back and we'll do the other sides, but uh, thank you so much for sharing your story, and um Yeah, go and click on some of the old podcasts. This is the first of a new batch. There's going to be more because Edward's told me I've got to do more. And on the back of that one, I'll quite enjoy making them.